Good morning, everybody. This is Victoria, your dog guru, and today we are talking about pit bulls. So to start off, um, there's a reason behind why I'm doing this. It's going to be my personal opinion based on my experience, which in this particular breed has been extensive. I've focused a ton of my life devoting it to pit bulls and kind of changing the stigmas that they've been labeled with bringing awareness to the breed as a whole and starting to educate other dog owners of various breeds how we got here, what is really behind claims made in the media. So I'm going to actually start by talking about what a pit bull is. Uh, currently, the way of detecting if it's a pit bull or not, generally speaking, is does it look like one? And the problem with that is no DNA testing has actually been performed. There's nothing specifically that shows that that dog is indeed a pit bull. And there's been a lot of crossbreeding and a ton of variation within this particular breed category. So generally you're talking about bully breeds. You're not actually just talking about pit bulls. Um, I think that's an important distinction to make because nine times out of 10, when someone says, oh, a pit bull attacked me, they actually don't know if it was a pit bull for starters. Uh, they are typically, you know, taking one look at it and assuming and quite frankly, judging a book by its cover because of what it appears to be. You know, we've got plenty of bully breeds and crosses of bully breeds that may resemble the pit bull, but it's it's not even a pit bull. In a previous podcast, I kind of went into how every, you know, decade or so we demonize a breed. And that is an important point to make because right now it's pit bulls, before it was Rottweilers, before that it was German Shepherds, before that it was Doberman Pinschers. I mean, the list continues. As long as we've had domesticated dogs, there's always been one we point to and say, that's that's the wrong breed. You know, you shouldn't be breeding them. They're awful dogs. When in reality, it had very little to do with the dog as an individual and a lot more to do with us as trainers, handlers, owners. So... I think keeping perspective is important. You know, right now it's pit bulls. There's going to be a new one. You know, in, in another handful of years, the Belgian Malinois that they currently use for, you know, uh, within the police department, as well as other places within the law enforcement community. So right now we're focusing on pit bulls, which the breed of discussion now, but back after World War One, we actually hated on dachshunds, you know, the, the little wiener looking dogs that are super cute. Yeah, we wanted to get rid of those because they were technically a German breed. So everything is perspective. You need to start thinking about things from the other side of the fence. So now I'm going to hop into a few myths that are associated with pit bulls specifically. One is that they have lockjaw. This is a complete fallacy. They do not have a jaw that locks into place and makes it impossible for them to let go. In reality, it's actually more of a factor of the larger the dog, the stronger the bite. So keep things in perspective. You know, a large breed, any breed, or even a hybrid of large breeds, that's what determines the strength of a bite. There is no predisposition to being aggressive. You know, We've learned as trainers and behavior modification specialists 
veterinarians, and the like, that it comes back to socialization. If the socialization was lacking, the behavior and the potential for bad behavior, it goes tenfold. Now, this applies to all breeds, small breeds, large breeds, medium breeds, mixes of breeds. So this is something that people will struggle with with any domesticated breed. If you don't socialize, if you don't expose, if you don't generalize experiences and make them positive, the likelihood that a dog is going to offend or have anxiety-based behaviors or reactive behaviors goes up considerably. Now let's talk about claims that were made about the breed being bred to fight, to kill. So we'll start with a bit of history. Back in the UK in the 1800s, we started developing a breed called the Old English Bulldog, which is actually very different from our current breed standards for Old English Bulldogs and actually resembled more of the American Bulldog. So they were bred for by, you know, the lower classes to promote entertainment. This was a distraction, a way to entertain and gamble away their time when they weren't working. And when they were breeding these dogs, they were often breeding in characteristics that created bite inhibition, which if you're not familiar with that term basically means a resistance to bite without awareness. So that's kind of what bite inhibition is loosely translated. At around 1835, Bait bulls, which was the original, quote, sport, which to me was barbaric, was deemed inhumane and that turned into dog fighting. So they pulled back on watching the dogs completely destroy one another and then it turned into yet another form of entertainment, but it was still rooted in what we were doing. When they started doing dog fighting, though, we changed a few things. So we took what we now look at as the American Bulldog. And then we started breeding them to smaller terriers that were more agile, more resistant. But all the while, we continued to instill in these dogs to be easy to handle for handlers. They were not at all known as human biters at all because they were programmed to go after one another. So you might be wondering how they ended up here in America. And the way that happened was as immigrants came over, they brought their dogs with them and they continued weaving them into the fabric that is social society. They were still revered as ex excellent dogs with people because man biters were frowned upon and we were still using them because of breed characteristics that we quite liked about them. They were loyal, they were trustworthy, they were dependable. And then as society continued to grow, so did their job. Their job shifted, it changed, and it went from having a purpose of harm that they were forced into to begin with, to then shifting towards becoming a family pet, becoming a family dog. And that's where the history shifts almost violently. I mean, it does a complete 180. We go from originally using these dogs as a source of entertainment to harm one another, and cattle prods were used and abusive techniques were used to basically fear them into responding in a way that we could bet on, to now, they were hanging out with the kids. They were hanging out as companion dogs. A lot of shop owners had them, not because they were guarding the place, but because they were just generally nice to everybody. So now why does that matter? It matters because it shows that when they aren't forced into that sort of lifestyle, and when they aren't forced to behave in a way that is combative, they just aren't. 
They're just not that dog. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, well, if we originally bred them for that purpose, there's probably still some of that in the lineage. Okay, that brings me back to what I was just saying, which was, we force them to do that. It is not something that they naturally chose to do. We literally threw them together and scared them until they responded to these harsh techniques, to this fear motivation. You know, some dogs were starved. Other dogs were abused in other forms with large objects and just using generally hideous techniques. The only thing that we kept consistent is we didn't want them biting handlers because those were the people that had to handle them in and out of a ring. But then when you take away those fear-based techniques, those things that we did to them that were abusive and cause them to be reactive towards another dog for fear, for survival, what have you, they dropped those behaviors like a bad habit because they never wanted to be a part of it to begin with. They didn't want to be a party to harming another animal. That's not even something we truly bred in. It's something we trained in. And I think that's something that we need to be talking about more. Dogs are not bred to be evil. They can be trained to do any number of things. So what characteristics does the now known American pit bull carry? Well, they still have a really strong work ethic. We didn't breed that out of them. Uh, they have a really strong and agile body. We like them because they're great companion dogs now. And we like them so much that during the First World War, we actually used them as dogs that went behind enemy lines. We shipped them kind of back and forth between people that were on either side to use them because we knew that we could trust them. We knew that we could believe in them. But at that point, we were not using them to attack. They had a different type of job. They would take supplies back and forth. They would bring awareness to soldiers that were down to other people in their platoon. And they were fearless. So how did we make the jump from Old English Bulldog, as they were originally called, to now calling them American Pit Bull Terriers? So that actually started in 1898, when a man called Chauncey Bennett actually coined the, the term for the breed and included it in the catalog. And then in the 1930s, a group petitioned for the American Pit Bull Terrier to be shown in the confirmation ring of the American Kennel Club. And at that point, the petition was received and acknowledged and the dogs began being shown for the AKC. So now let's talk about how things have shifted since then. I think the most notable case in recent history within the past 20 years or so was the Michael Vick cases, the bad news bullies and his pit bull fighting ring and contributions and things like that. And so a lot of people don't know what was really going on in that place, which unfortunately I personally know firsthand. I worked with a lot of the dogs that were taken out of his care and control, thank God. And I think this was a really great opportunity to shed light on the breed because here we had dogs that had been used for fighting over and over and over, but we didn't really go into how they were trained to do it. So I'm gonna give you a little backstory there, stuff that wasn't in the media, some things that just weren't talked about. One is they were using cattle prods. Uh, they were electrocuting the dogs on a regular basis, which is horrific. They were starving them. So their first instinct was to try and consume whatever was in front of them out of desperation. 
They were kept in horrible conditions. They were not socialized. They weren't aware of an outside world. But here's what's really interesting about that story. As horrific as it is and was, it brought awareness to this felony. Dogfighting in all 50 states is now a felony. It's not acceptable. It wasn't then, it isn't now. And what I really was interested with regard to the Michael Vick cases was it was a true testament to the resilience of these dogs. Here they were kept in horrible conditions, not socialized, no human attention or interaction. They lived in a very isolated world with, you know, lacking all the things that we give a normal dog. You know, they didn't have time to cuddle with anybody. They didn't have actual beds to sleep in. They were chained or they were caged in, in tiny, tiny conditions that were unhealthy. And there were several other practices that I will not go into because quite frankly, it's upsetting and would be upsetting to anybody who had to hear about it. But rest assured, these dogs were not making the choice to be aggressive. They weren't making the choice to act out in the fashion that they were being forced to. And as soon as they were given another opportunity and proper training from somebody who actually knew what they were doing and knew how to connect with a dog that had been harmed or abused because that in this case was certainly the problem. They changed, they shifted, they, they became the family dogs that they have always been. I recently was made aware of a service dog group and I'm, a, you know, I'm a huge advocate for service dogs, but in this group, the creator of the group actually talks about how she's a vet tech and this breed needs to be part of breed specific legislation, which I think is just insane. I mean, it really is insane. And then she further tries to make the point that here's a breed that is naturally predisposed to being combative, aggressive towards other dogs. They have a strong innate nature that prevents them from being good candidates of service dogs. As an American Pitbull advocate, this is unnerving because this is information that's being continuously pushed out there without scientific proof. You know, she talks about how they're, they can be unpredictably aggressive. Well, the ASPCA debunks that. And they will tell you that that is not a founded truth. She doesn't just stop at, well, they're dog aggressive. She also goes into how they're aggressive towards people. Well, let me just tell you, even when we were doing dog fighting eons ago, dogs that showed aggression towards people were either culled or the breeding stopped on that animal because it was not a desirable trait. So saying that they're predisposed to being aggressive towards people is just misinformation being perpetuated. As far as being bred for certain traits, um, notably aggression, I wanna point something out and that's aggression does not exist in a vacuum. It is created through cultivated experiences or lack thereof. You know, the ASPCA actually cites that the one of the main contributors to aggression is lack of socialization because lack of exposure equals unpredictability. But they also make the distinction that this is not isolated to pit bulls. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It has to, it's across the board. They go further on to say that the response of aggression and the expectation of breeding those traits in is actually the responsibility of who else the owners. I just want to point out that breed-based discrimination is something that we start, something that we create, and it's something that we 
are solely responsible for. You know, after World War II, German shepherds received the same discrimination that pit bulls do now. And that was because they were German dogs. But what happened was we started taking them on ourselves and we realized that they had excellent drive and determination and we started using them within the police force, which obviously they do have the aptitude to do that. They, they're excellent at their job. My fear right now is Belgian Malinois are going to be next on the list. It's bad enough that we have a history of doing this, but, you know, Belgian Malinois with consistent, straightforward training and wide socialization are excellent dogs. They're very driven. Um, they're workaholics. I mean, they're just fantastic for what we're currently using them for. And the problem I see developing is that of which we see and have seen over and over, which is, okay, well, they haven't been socialized. They haven't been trained. They're ending up in the wrong hands, not within the police department. I'm talking about, you know, owners who are not training these dogs which is bringing them into the limelight. Slowly but surely, they're kind of inching in that direction. And is it the dog's fault? No, it's not the dog's fault. If the dog had been socialized and trained, they wouldn't be under a microscope right now. Before we hop into a new era of demonizing yet another breed, we need to look back. We need to be aware that, you know, pit bulls specifically were always bred to be companion dogs. They were always family pets. Okay, so now let's take a look at bite statistics. They're a matter of public record. There's a few things that I don't like about bite statistics. The first being that typically the dogs are misidentified to begin with. And since there isn't any genetic testing do done, we really don't know if it was a pit bull that was responsible for it or really any other breed. I mean, there's no defining or determining factors other than, well, it looks like a pit bull, but it could be any other breed. It could be a mix of other breeds. There's a problem with that, you know. Then we're missing a critical element, which is context. You know, a lot of times people will say, well, I don't know what caused him to do that. I don't know where that came from. I can't believe that happened. Well, here's the thing um, any animal behaviorist, myself included, will tell you. There's always a reason, and it's never random. A lot of times, a lot of this, the signals were ignored, which resulted in a bite or an attack. But the backstory is important. You know, if you only cite an incident and you don't know the context of the attack, you're really running numbers in circles without real evidence. When I would go to a client's home and I would talk about what led up to the bite that they were calling me about? What led up to a fight or attack that led them to me? And I can tell you, just by observing the dog, nine times out of ten, there was a whole history that had gone ignored that could have been addressed earlier that contributed to the situation and the incident that they were reporting to me then. Then the other thing we need to keep in consideration and perspective is what leads to a bite? And there's two main driving causes and forces behind it. One is fear and one is pain, which can be determining factors in if a dog bites or not. And this is not breed specific. So when you have misidentification, adding to that no surrounding context of what occurred before the bite happened, you can easily inflate statistics. You can easily slant the bias. Lacking context and cause are really really damning ways to start a statistic off. I mean, as it is, they're already gonna be weighted. I say that because a lot of dog attacks and bites aren't even reported. I can't tell you how many clients I sat down with who had been really quite injured by their dog or 
incidents that resulted in stitches or hospitalizations or mortal injuries. But what was interesting about this is in each case, each owner that would call me had never actually reported that it was their dog that did it. Why is this? Well, I mean, I think the answer is somewhat obvious. It's that they wanted to protect their dog because they still love their dog. And perhaps they had seen the dog kind of escalating over time. So they knew that they had a hand in the responsibility of the attack in the first place, which then resulted in them calling me and looking for help, looking for somebody who could really address the problem from the ground up. But I gotta tell you, in all the years I've been doing this, the worst aggression I've seen was not at all breed specific. It had everything to do with lack of training, lack of socialization, lack of exposure to other dogs or children or foreign situations. And so you'll never actually hear me say something like pit bulls are mean, pit bulls are aggressive, they're evil, we should get rid of them because it simply isn't true. You know, I've seen just as much aggression in a small dog as I have in any other breed of any other size. It comes back to owner responsibility and what was done or not done with the dog to make them a better member of society. Just like you would, you know, educate your child on what's right and wrong, you need to do the same with a dog. I use positive reinforcement to send that message. I want them to have a level of trust and compatibility with my goals for them, something they can connect with, something that they can understand. I also want to point out that the American Temperament Society, specifically in regards to pit bulls, talks about how they're extremely happy and friendly dogs. So there you have an entire organization devoted to identifying and ranking temperament, and they're going, yeah, they're great. Pit bulls are awesome dogs. So I think that information needs to be put out there more often. I think we need to get away from the fear and all the things that we have created, just like we did with the dachshunds, just like we did with German shepherds, and take note of what this breed really brings to the table, because it's a significant contribution. And as their sole providers, caregivers, trainers, and handlers, it's our sole responsibility to keep this breed alive, to give it the credibility it truly deserves, and the notoriety that it deserves, but not negative press. I'm going to actually, in our show notes, include a handful of excellent articles to read, but I also want to talk about one specific book that I think is excellent, and it talks about the development specifically of pit bulls. It's called Pit Bulls by Bronwyn Dickey, and I'll include a link to that book, as well as several cited documents that you can kind of check out and read through and find out what's underneath these very layered claims. So this way you can have an informed decision instead of just following and adhering to an uneducated point of view and an unsubstantiated claim that isn't scientifically proven. I'm also going to include links on adopting pit bulls. I can tell you from experience, I rescued a pit bull myself. He's an excellent dog. He's extremely intelligent. He's good to my family. We've never had an incident of aggression. And furthermore, he's helped dogs that I got calls on that were aggressive due to lack of proper socialization, training, and foundation. And he helped me turn those cases around. Because like I've said before, 
He speaks dog even better than I read it. So a little food for thought for everybody. I'm sure you're gonna write in about this, but I hope I've given you some new things to think about and kind of highlighted the history of the progression of this breed. I think we need to be mindful of the truth about this breed, you know, that they're loyal, that they're companion dogs, that they're family dogs, that we've woven them into our society. And now what we once programmed them to do physically, which was against what they wanted to do naturally is changing. That is shifting. And we can embrace a breed that was fantastic to begin with. If you're a pit bull lover, I would love to hear from you because I think we need more stories from individuals who have pit bulls, perhaps who you've rescued, or perhaps you have one as a service animal and love the dog. I want to open people's eyes up to the real predisposition of this breed instead of making assumptions and claims without cause. Claims where we're identifying based on what something looks like rather than what it actually is. I hope everybody's having a good day and enjoyed this particular cast. I know that it's a controversial topic, but I felt like since it was near and dear to my heart, I had to share it with you and I had to give everybody a wider view of this exceptional breed. Our next episode is going to be coffee and canines where we'll be answering more of your questions and offering training tips and advice. That's all for me today, everybody. This has been Victoria, your dog guru and American Pitbull advocate. Namaste.